all founders of companies and my dad having been my mentor, you take care of everybody around you first. It's very paternal, very much like the father of the family, you know, and my dad was in the military his whole life. So that's where he learned that mantra. You know, you eat last, you take care of your, your team. I learned that growing up and I realized that it's my job and my obligation to do whatever it takes to make sure I'm taking care of the company, the people, the shareholders, clients. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Connected Advisor. I'm your host, Kyle Van Pelt, co-founder and CEO of MileMarker. And today I have the distinct privilege of being joined by Peter Raimondi. Peter is the founder of Dakota Wealth. That's not the only thing, though. He also built Banyan, and he was one of the original founders of the Colony Group. We are in store for a bunch of insights and a great conversation today. Peter, thanks so much for joining the show. Uh, thank you, Kyle, for having me. I uh, look forward to it. Me too. Me too. Absolutely. So I like to start all of these off with the same question. And what I've found in my time in this industry, Peter, is that everybody kind of you know has a different story about how they got to this space. Uh, not many people kind of grow up thinking they're going to end up in the wealth management industry, or maybe some people do, but we call it the, uh, what is your money moment question? So what was that moment in your life we have found that you know had something to do with money that kind of caused you to say, hey, I really want to go devote my career to this industry and to helping people with their money? There was such a moment, actually. I was uh, in Boston University Law School in my first uh, year, first semester. I was working full-time for my dad when there weren't classes at school. So I would leave school and go join him on a job site or something. Uh, and one of my uh, law school buddies uh, worked at Merrill Lynch, and he would do the same thing. So when class was, was done, he would go into the city and work as an assistant to one of the brokers there. So I was driving him to work one day and he was explaining to me what a call option was and what a put option was and how for $6.25 you could control 100 shares of stock. And it was a, pretty fascinating. Over the next couple of days, we were talking more about it and picked up the Wall Street Journal and started reading through the option pages and realizing from a, more of a mathematical attraction to it, that there was a way to really apply some significant leverage for a small amount of money. And this couldn't be that hard. And so this was in February of 81. And so I convinced my dad to lend me a couple of hundred dollars. And I think I had a hundred dollars to my, my name. And I researched and decided to buy uh, some call options in Kennecott Copper, which I had decided was probably going to be acquired uh, based on activity in the options market that I could see. Unusual volume for a company that shouldn't have had any volume. And for $175 investment, uh, within a matter of weeks, it turned into a $5,000 profit. The company did get acquired by Standard Oil, and it was right around the same time that my daughter was born. And it was uh, sometime right after March 2nd or 3rd or 4th is when it all happened. And uh, I was able to pay my tuition for the first year and use some of the other proceeds to learn a lot about the options market, did a lot of trading, uh, and ended up writing my thesis on option trading, insider trading in the options market, which it was rampant in 1981, 80 and 81. And they ended up changing the rule 10B5 as a result of the insider trading that was happening in the options market. 
So yeah, it was a kind of a fantastic time for M&A activity in the oil industry, uh, as well as the metals and mining industry. So I, I learned about investing firsthand and then applied myself during the remaining time at law school to uh, deciding that I wanted to be in the investment market, in the wealth management market, uh, and got recruited out of law school to go to work for ACO. Oh, cool. That was in 1983. Wow. Yeah, 40 years. I can't believe I've been out of law school that long. Man. Yeah. And so you finished law school. That's that's interesting, especially after you kind of had this sort yep. of scenario. So yep. did you at any any point think you would go into the law profession or was that more just a, hey, I'm, I'm in this deep. Let's go ahead and finish this out and it'll be valuable to me in the long run. Well, no, I didn't really. It wasn't really clear how I was going to make uh, make a living, I guess, marrying the two law and and my my interest in wealth management together. Uh, so I started to do a lot of uh, my classwork on estate planning and trust and tax law. So I knew that if I shaped my education based on the holistic approach to taking care of somebody with wealth, so estate, tax, and then ultimately knowing something about the investment market, I would at least have that appeal. Uh, so I didn't really design myself very well to go to work for a law firm unless I wanted to go in the tax department or the estate and trust department. And I did interview with a lot of law firms, obviously, in my last year, assuming that's where I would end up going. I didn't even know about ACO. I didn't even know who they were. And they came to the school and recruited me, and they read my thesis. And And I had a couple of other firms in Chicago in the options market that read as well and wanted me to interview for their business, which was representing floor traders in Chicago. So that's where the crossover happened. And cool. I was fortunate to work for ACO. Yeah, man, that's really neat. You don't you don't hear that type of story very often. As somebody who's pretty interested in options myself, I'm curious, like with the the businesses that you've built, Colony Group, Banyan, and now Dakota, are options a pretty core part of the strategy that you put in place for clients still? Or was that always just kind of a Peter thing that you were interested in doing personally? Where it dovetailed in my legal career in school was I wrote about insider trading in the options market, how people used options to trade on insider information. So that was more from an SEC compliance point of view. So when I got recruited to ACO, a lot of what I did for them was help advise clients and, and all their advisors on how to keep the executives from violating 10B5 or 16B through the use of their options at work. So short swing profits and insider trading violations were usually done accidentally by the executives. So so my role was to try to educate them. We would do seminars uh, throughout the country with their clients. When I left ACO, was I didn't want to sell product, and they sold insurance, among other things. So I created the Colony Group really as I kind of mimicked what ACO did really well, but I didn't sell any product. Uh, I never have in my career, actually. So I appealed to and went out and you know recruited executives as clients and then did all of the wealth management around that tax estate planning development on law firm as well. And in the 80s, there really wasn't much competition for what we did. And then I managed money as a byproduct. Did options come into play? No, but the the knowledge of 10B5 and 16B was critical uh, to the executive, the executive counseling that we did. Later, when I started Banyan, which was 20 years later, I created a boutique investment management firm solely to manage money. I, I wasn't interested in anything else at that point in my career. I was 50 years old, moved to Florida, sort of started 
all over again with a different vision and created an add-on service to investment management, which was option trading. So for an additional sum, a client could add a layer of option trading on top of their equity portfolio, and we would write covered calls or do put spreads on the S&P or whatever as a hedge, and clients would pay extra for that. And it was pretty successful. We had a pretty defined, well-defined program and we actually had a number of clients who engaged us just to trade options, which was actually a lot of fun, but kind of a little bit of a risky play, but but still an interesting path. And now uh, at Dakota, we offer option overlay uh, to our equity portfolios. Again, uh, for an additional fee, we will write cover calls and do protective puts and, and hedging for clients. That's really cool. Uh, a lot of the the firms that I know and speak with don't don't touch options with a ten foot pole. They kind of tend yeah. to keep you know the the models and the portfolio is pretty straight. Why do you think that is? Do you think that it's just operational overhead that creates challenges? Is it more risk than they're comfortable with? Like why isn't everybody yeah. doing covered calls and put spreads and things like that on top of a kind of standard equity portfolio? Well, first of all, it it's, it takes a skill um, to be able to understand option trading. It's a unique skill that really has very little to do with the underlying equity or stock picking. It really is a derivative and it's based on pure risk. There's no fundamental value to an option at all. And it's based on things that are oftentimes out of your control, some of which is in your control, such as the timing of the option uh, when it expires and the amount of volume and interest in the particular underlying stock and how options are being used in that stock, uh, on that stock to to hedge it or to anticipate an event up or down, and or just to add income is in a covered call program. So there are many different reasons why people would use options. And if you're going to incorporate it into your business, you're fighting all those reasons why people are doing it. I mean, there's usually one reason why somebody buys a stock. They think it's going to go up and it's a good investment. They want to hold it. Worst case, they want to trade it. Uh, so they hold it for a short period of time. But it's you're not really fighting with a lot of other reasons why somebody would do that. Option trading can be, it can be a bit of a minefield. Secondly, oh, it's constantly in need of your time and attention. It attracts your attention all the time because in a moment's notice, you might not lift that trade off or in a moment's notice, put a trade on. And it's, you can't be away from it very long. There's no long term. So, you know, if I own Apple, I can own Apple and go on vacation for two weeks and not worry about it. Uh, but if I own calls on Apple, I want to make sure I'm very plugged into it because I could get called away and I don't want to lose the stock right. or I could lose an opportunity where that option spikes and I only had one day to capitalize on it and I was on vacation somewhere. So yeah. option trading requires a lot of time spent. A lot of babysitting. It does. <laughs> and a lot of aggravation. Okay. So shifting gears a little bit, you are on your third act. So Colony yeah. Group, uh, great success. Yeah. And you do Banyan, you sell that to Boston Private, another great success. Yeah. Thank you. You're on your third act. I think my question for you is, you got the chance to start another firm after your first go and say, hey, different vision, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. With this go around, what are you doing differently? What are the learnings you're taking to try and apply to this one that you know maybe it got away from you with the other two that you think the opportunity exists for you here at Dakota? Yeah, that's um, a well-framed question. Starting Dakota was really built out of a passion for wanting to create wealth for 
the individuals who work really hard to build the firm. So in short, creating an employee-owned company. So that was one of the main driving forces for wanting to start Dakota. I knew I was going to have to take care of my legacy clients for years to come. So I wasn't going to retire after Banyan. I had left Banyan two years after we sold it and I had a two-year non-compete. So that was 2016 through 18. But I knew during that time frame when 2000, my non-compete was over 2018, I was still going to be the trustee and investment manager and wealth manager for 25 legacy client relationships I'd had for 30 plus years. So why not build a team around myself and build another firm that everybody would own it? It would be employee owned. Secondly, if I had the right team and I built the right integration network and operations team, I could acquire firms very deliberately and intentionally and grow the firm across the country with the same focus on being employee-owned and having an incredibly strong culture. In other words, I don't want to do this again and not have fun, Kyle. I mean, if I'm going to do this a third time at my age, uh, I was in my early 60s at that time, I'm going to want to have a lot of fun doing it. So I made sure I put together the six or seven people that I had known pretty well in the industry I had worked with before that I knew were enjoyable to work with, hardworking, would jump at the chance to own part of a new firm. And here we are a little over five years later with 85 employees, of wow. which 65 of them are equity holders. No way. Yeah. That's it's, cool. uh, it's, it's about as employee owned as you can get. And we've made every effort to do so. And we're thrilled uh, that so many people have opted to become investors in, in, in the firm. Very that, important. That is a really cool story. And so- I got to ask you, though, when I hear you say that, are you still having fun, right? So the whole the whole goal is let's have fun on this third one. I, I'm doing this podcast with you. I, I obviously am having fun or I would have passed on it. <laughs> you, know? you knew uh, this was going to come up. You knew I was going to ask. Yeah, uh, I, would, I wouldn't want to talk to you if I was miserable and not having fun. Um, no, this is the most fun I've had, to be, to be honest with you. This is the best group of people I've ever worked with. And, and I mean that sincerely. They've made this fun for me. They make it so that I want to come to work every day. Yeah, I guess you could think, well, they're just laughing at my jokes because I'm their boss. And then <laughs> I think to myself, well, that wouldn't necessarily mean they write a check and buy a big chunk of stock. Yeah. Where it, you know, all these people have written a check to own part of this company. So we're doing something right. They're feeling it. They're enjoying it too. And it's as close to a family business that I could four and that's what I grew up in. So it feels right for me and I'll stick around as long as they'll have me. And that's awesome. Um, I'm by far not a majority shareholder here. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a blessed man. And I know that every day. That's insightful. So yeah. there's probably a lot of people listening to this who maybe hear that and go, man, that I'm, I'm envious of that. I'm running an RAA. It's growing. It's good. But I, you know, I, I wish it was more fun or I wish that I could do a little bit more about what Peter's talking about. What what would you say to that person if they were able to say, hey, like the firm is working, but it doesn't, you know, I'm not enjoying it as much. Like, what would you tell them to change? There's two or three things that I've learned in the first go around and the second go around that I'm absolutely adamant about applying differently the third time around. One is you've got to make sure that you have the right people in the seats. And the minute you realize that person A is just not the right person, they might've been the right person, 
the first year or two. They might have been the right person when you first hired them, but the firm has evolved. The firm has grown and changed over time, and they're no longer the right person for the job. You have to make a move to move that person out and bring the right person in as quickly as possible. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to fire the person, but you have to get them out of the seat and put somebody in the seat. I didn't do that in my first two companies. I have done that here. It's not easy. It can be painful. It can be hurtful at times, not meaning to be, but having to be. One has to remember that the founder and CEO of the company's responsibility is to take care of the shareholders, the owners, and to take care of the employees. All founders of companies, and my dad having been my mentor, you know, you pay yourself last, you take care of everybody around you first. It's very paternal, very much like the father of a family, you know, and the breadwinner of a family could be the mother of the family, but you take care of your people first. My dad was in the military his whole life, so that's where he learned that mantra as an officer in the military, um, you know, you eat last, you take care of your, your team. So I, I learned that growing up and I realized the third time around that it's my job and my obligation to do whatever it takes to make sure I'm taking care of the company, the people, the shareholders, clients, right? We have a model from the beginning, Kyle, that said, we don't put our clients first. We put our employees first. And the reason is, and I'm proud of that, if I put my employees first and I take care of them first and foremost, they are going to be the best they can be for my clients. And my clients, therefore, are going to get the best from them. If I put my clients first at the expense of the way I would treat or take care of my employees, you know, there's going to be turnover. I'm not going to have the best employees all the time and the clients are going to feel that. It's like the air, the airlines and they tell you to put the mask on yourself first before you start to help other people. I've done that. And in starting Dakota, the mask was firmly on. But then I realized the next job I have to do is make sure that their masks are all on and they're taking care of themselves and each other. And it was it's hard. It's really hard to step up to someone and say, look, you're not working out or it's time that you move on or whatever, but it's the best thing I've ever done in this company. Secondly, I don't think folks can really truly appreciate what it's like to walk around your company and realize that everyone here has written a check to own part of it. And the best example I can give you is in all the years, I think we've made 14 acquisitions or transactions here at Dakota in five years. I think I made seven or eight at Banyan. Uh, and one or two before that. So over 20 acquisitions in my career, and I can tell you that times five or six, the number of companies we've spoken to, so 150 companies that we've looked at very carefully and uh, in my career and ended up doing deals with 25 of them, there wasn't one of them that was employee out, not one. I'm not talking about a two-person firm or a three-person firm, but even those were hard to find. The equity almost entirely resided in the founder and maybe one other person to a small degree. So 95% or 90% in the founder and maybe five or 10 in number two. Sometimes, you know, if the firm is big enough, three people, but not, not much, still an enormous amount of concentration in the founder. And I've often been asked, why is that? Well, obviously now, especially at this point in my career, I ask uncomfortable questions to people. So I ask questions like, 
curiously why after 10 years, 20 years of running your own firm and telling me how great your people are, I'm surprised only 5% of the firm is being held by other people beside yourself. If they're all so great, why haven't you made sure that they own part of it? And the answer I get is it's surprising to this day that they're as forthright with me as they are, but they, with no compunction, will say something like, oh, I, I pay them enough. There's no reason to give them any equity. I've had that answer several times. Or, gee, I don't see why anybody would want equity in the company. It's, you know, they make a good living, they get a good bonus, and they can always move on if they want to. And it's like, there's silly reasons why. Sometimes they're saying in such a way they don't deserve it. Uh, Other times what they're really telling me is I'm too greedy to allow anyone else to own the company. I want to control everything. I want to control the ownership. I want to control the growth and the opportunity to make money. And so here you are getting a payday. We're buying your firm and nobody is really sharing in that wealth except for you. Yet they're all coming here. They're all becoming shareholders now in Dakota. And that whole myth that you've had is over. What are you going to say now? You know, what's your message now? Because our message is entirely different than yours. So generally, as you can expect, we don't engage firms that have that attitude. Most of the firms that we have gone forward and acquired at Dakota are similar thinking individuals where they have spread the equity around. It's an important aspect of why they're joining Dakota. Very important. This podcast is brought to you by Turncast. We make game-changing content for fintech and financial services companies. Learn more at turncast.com. That is a really incredible segment for you to share because you you touched on something a little bit for me, which I wanted to ask you. You guys have made a bucket of acquisitions. You've made five acquisitions since June of last year. And so my my question was, you know, what's making you all stand out, you know, in a competitive market, right? There's lots of people who have war chests and they're trying to acquire and lots of people writing checks out there. Do you think it is that employee owned model that's really helping you stand out? Or do you think there's more than that? I know there's more. I'm probably not the best person to ask this question to. It's better to probably ask someone that did decide to sell. Yeah. I can tell you that the discerning factors or the differentiators with us and others we don't have any private equity. Almost all of our competitors, and I think it's safe to say literally 99% of our competitors in the space have private equity, maybe layers of private equity. We do not. We have a sustainable equity partner and immigrant partners, but we do not have traditional private equity, nor will we, do we intend to ever have private equity, no need for it. This firm was very well capitalized at the beginning by me and my founding partners. And when we needed to raise more permanent, serious level of capital, which we did last a year ago, January, we did a very deep dive with uh, Colchester Partners and uh, ended up settling uh, with Emigrant, uh, which we're thrilled with. Uh, they've been great partners for us. That has allowed us to stand tall in a room full of other buyers where they have all sold either controlling interest or soon will have to sell controlling interests in their firms. So... As we stress with sellers, when you become part of Dakota, uh, it's not likely you're ever going to go through another transaction again. If you become part of virtually any of the other folks you're talking to, it's very likely within the next five years, you will have one or two other transactions that you will have to have your clients sign on and approve because the firm will be sold or controlling interest will be sold. 
or private equity will cause an upheaval in the uh, status of who's running the firm. Not the case here. Secondly, you become a meaningful member of the roundtable here. So as a former founder and, and, and entrepreneur, you're welcome to the table here to sit with me and the rest of the folks here and be part of a management team to help shape what the future of Dakota looks like. Why would I be buying your firm and bringing you in and then telling you I don't want to hear your advice? I don't want you at the table. I don't need your your input on where we go. If you've built a firm that's good enough for me to be interested in, enticing enough for me to lay out $10, $20 million for, I would want your advice at the table, would I not? So that makes a big difference to a lot of them. Uh, we don't want to buy anyone where the founder is selling and retiring and going off. We want to look for firms that are still very entrepreneurial, but they've hit the wall when it comes to growth or uh, succession or just operations. And we become a, a solution for them to satisfy one or all of those problems. But they still have that entrepreneurial spirit and they're still willing to grow and work hard and build a firm. So. It creates a, a, a nice vibe in the company, one that doesn't die when the transaction happens. It continues to live on. I love it. That is awesome. Okay, shifting gears a little bit. You've talked about how you guys have added, you're up to 85 employees now. The firm has grown quite a bit. I think one conversation I love to have with people like yourself is the uh, yin and yang of technology investment versus people investment, right? So talk to me a little bit about Dakota's technology strategy as you're growing, as you're acquiring firms. You know, I know they can bring their technology in. It can create a little bit of a mess, all of that sort of fun stuff. So right. just talk to us about how you guys think about that and handle it. We're very flexible about how we approach acquisition. So we don't force you to change how you deal with your clients, how you manage money, how you deliver the wealth management service. I mean, obviously, we've vetted you enough to know that you do a pretty good job, Aaron. But we are going to take over your compliance, of course. Your brand becomes Dakota. Uh, so the marketing and PR and persona of you and your regional office, wherever you might be, now becomes a Dakota office. But the technology side that's really critical is cybersecurity, first and foremost. It's probably the biggest threat we have in our industry, I would think, is the ability. I mean, God, there isn't a day that goes by, I'm sure, where people in our firm aren't being fished by an email or uh, text messages or emails requesting, you know, bogus wire transfers for clients. You know, that happens in our industry all the time. It's an insane amount of attack we're under. So your cybersecurity has to be top notch. Your tech people have to be top notch. And then your stack of what, what is your reporting software? What is your CRM? How is your, your overall technology stack working to make the job of delivering very high-end wealth management services to your clients. How is that stacking up against what it could be or should be in a perfect world? You have to spend a lot of money. You have to do it. We knew that going into this. We spent a lot of money building Dakota in the first year, building the tech stack properly and investing in an integration team and an operations team that could deploy that stack. So look at your tech stack as your weapons that you're fighting a battle with. You don't go into that battle without having really good weaponry. You can't possibly be using 
old weaponry from two wars ago and expect to really beat the enemy, right? So the enemy is your competition as well as those that wish to attack you and hurt you. And I think you have to have top-notch technology for that. Buying and selling stocks, Kyle, that's the easy part. Fidelity and Schwab and Pershing, they've made it easy. No commissions, buy and sell whatever you want. And we're very good at it. But how we protect the firm and the client's information becomes critical. That's so true. And uh, the analogy of you don't want to be fighting, you know, a, a war today with weapons from 20 years ago really just rings home for me because um, yeah. I feel like that's what we are trying to help so many people in the industry do with mile markers. How do you yeah. take a lot of the things that are working for you, but modernize yeah. them? Um, well, exactly. To- You're doing a really good job at that, not just at mile marker, but this, this podcast is a great job of putting, using technology to put out new and different ideas, uh, maybe top of mind ideas for many of the professionals out there. There are many people doing it. So yeah, you're, you're actually, you know, deploying the exact same logic to it. I appreciate that. I appreciate yep. that. Well, this, this has been incredible. We're going to have to have you back on. Cause I didn't even get to probably three or four of the, the things I wanted to discuss. Yeah, you, you said you were going to ask some fun questions. So far you haven't done that. Well, that's what's coming up. So that's what I'm transitioning to. Um, so we are going to transition into the the mile marker minute. Um, so this is kind of a, a lightning round segment of our podcast. Okay. The goal is to have all of the questions answered in less than a minute. We're not going to hold you to it, but uh, it should be kind of snappy, quick lightning round S. You ready for that? Do the best I can. All right, here we go. Um, we're going to start off with this one. If you could start a business in an industry outside of wealth management, what industry would you choose? Something to do with photography, most likely. Maybe an art gallery, a photographic art mm-hmm. gallery. That is a cool, man. Okay. I want to dig into that, but I got to keep going because we're in the lightning round. Uh, oh. Okay. I love superheroes. So if you could have one superpower, which one would you choose? Be able to stop time. Oh, that's a good one. Peter, what is your favorite junk food? The one you don't want people to know that that's your guilty pleasure. Uh, probably really salty, skinny French fries. Oh, that's a good one. Do you have a favorite place you get them from? Uh, Jay Alexander's makes some pretty good French fries, I would say. Yeah. Killer. I love it. And then if you're not, you know, at Dakota or whatever, what do you do for fun? Where are you spending your time when you're not, when you're not at work? Uh, well, beside sports betting, fantasy football kind of thing, uh, I would say at this stage in my life, it's Probably hanging around uh, muscle car shows. I have uh, three or four muscle cars. We take those cars to shows. We go to auctions. Um, me and a couple of buddies that, that really like that. But I would say that uh, Dakota is a very fantasy football friendly company. How did, how did and, you do this this season? Um, you don't want to ask me that question. <laughs> uh, well, we, uh, we, we have a legacy league of 10 of us that have been involved for about 10 years. Uh, so oh, Banyan as well. But there were so many people interested, we had to do another league of 10 and then another league. We have four leagues of 10 now. So it's just uh, where we, we love it. It's fun. We, we make fun of each other about it all the time. And it's part of what helps build the, yeah. and keep the culture pretty active. We also have things like movie night and, and book night and, and music club and, the gang at Dakota have built a culture of unification and the kind of stuff that you love to see. People go out together a lot and they share uh, a lot of 
personal things in their life that that make us all human. So it's it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. Well, yeah. Peter, you crushed the mile marker minute. Normally, I would end it here, but I'm too intrigued, so I'm going to actually pause for a second. Tell yeah. me about the three muscle cars that you have. <laughs> so I have a '65 black GT fastback Mustang. Oh man, that's um, and it's all resto mods. It's a red interior, it's black outside, beautiful restoration. All of it effectively brand new. The original 289 engine, though. Uh, then I have a 70 uh, Chevy C10 short bed red custom resto mod pickup truck. That's cool. And then I have a 71 fully authentic 71 Chevelle SS 454 big block. And that is original 71 uh, fun to drive. Uh, all three of them are fun to drive. I uh, did have a 69 Z28 that was too animalistic. I had to get rid of it. It, it kept wanting to get away from me, and, and I thought three was enough. So, Oh, man. So yeah. were those cars that you really loved when you were younger, and you're like, I have to try and get my hands on these, or did you develop yeah. a love for them over time and, and wanted to go get it? My oldest brother, John, was uh, is an artist, but was also a car fanatic back then. So I was 10 years old in 65, and I think he had a Stingray then, and then later a GTO and a Charger, and all uh, from 65 to 69. So I grew up at that 10 to 15-year-old stage, being around cars, in cars, or at the drag strip, uh, watching him tool around in cars, and yeah, couldn't wait to get my license. I was driving before I had my license. No, that's cool. uh, so those were the cars that harkened back to probably the deepest part of my childhood memories. It's yeah. that late sixties muscle car era. That is, that's awesome. I, my soapbox is that I think, you know, we've over-optimized vehicles so much today. They all go in this wind tunnel and every car looks the same. They're all sure. the same bodies. And I really wish we could get back to people putting some true character and art into, into vehicles. Like that's really what it is. It's really an art form. You know, it, it is funny because there's so much about driving new cars today. I drive a, a I'm a con GTS. So the technology in the communication, the radio and, and, and the music system is so advanced. And obviously the engine and performance is pretty advanced. Yeah. Uh, but when I get into the Chevelle, it still has a cassette player in it. Yeah. And, and I still have a, a glove box full of Van Morrison and Neil Young cassettes. And so I put him in and it's horrible sounding. It does not sound good. I'm not going to lie to you. There is <laughs> nothing good about listening to Van Morrison through that uh, cassette player. Uh, but it is kind of fun for a second to pop it in and advance it. And you realize how archaic that is compared to what you have at your disposal today. Yeah. So that's a good point. You know, yeah. but for, for all the car manufacturers listening, I will give up a couple miles to the gallon if you start giving me some, you know, cool body shapes and stuff again. Uh, well, that's just it, you know, and the colors were great and, and the wheels were great. That It really is, and I hate to sound this way because I know you sound old when you say this, but they really don't make cars like they used to. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something about that, that mid-50s to um, maybe 1969 or 70 period that 15 years cars were just so special yeah uh, and they were works of art just look at any of the the cadillacs from the late 50s early 60s look at chevy from the early 60s i mean the way their fins and wings and they all look like missiles and rockets and yeah just just beautiful yeah i i, I totally agree i mean yeah. uh you know what would be your dream uh car a muscle car if you had 
unlimited resources. You go to the auction and buy any muscle car. Would be fifty-eight Corvette. Oh, um, beautiful. Yeah. Yep, probably baby baby blue. I forget the name that Chevy called it, but there's like a they have like a baby sky blue kind of color. Alpine blue, I think. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, 58 Corvette, Alpine blue, which is actually funny because I'm a I'm a Ford guy on almost everything else, but I just think that those those late 50s Corvettes are absolutely stunning yeah. and unbelievable. Yeah. So that's the first the C1 edition. Yeah. Um, and I'm a C2 guy, so 63 to 67 is my dream car uh, Stingray, which I, I, I've only had one of them for a short period of time. Yep. Uh, but this, the, the C1s that you talk about, they're all starting to get resto modded now. So they, they were not great driving cars. They, oh, I can only imagine. Got, yeah, they had a giant steering wheel and they had no power steering. They like driving a big tractor. Uh, but now they're being all resto modded to be extremely uh, beautiful and effectively uh, a pleasure to drive. That's it'll good set, to know. It'll set you back two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, maybe one day. Yeah, maybe one day. I've got I've got four small kids, so they probably wouldn't fit in a C one. That'd have to be a date night car for my wife and I. No, uh, no. But your your wife and you would barely fit in that car. <laughs> yeah. Man, well, I have really enjoyed this, Peter. I'm so glad that you took the time to come and uh, like share you. some knowledge. Yeah. Talk about cars, talk about a bunch of other stuff. I, uh, I've i really enjoyed it. So thank you. I did too. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I'm glad you reached out. And you're doing a great job. Keep doing it. I'll come back anytime. Even if you're not on air, let's talk cars or whatever you want. That yeah. sounds excellent, man. Thank you. Well, everybody right. listening, this has been another episode of The Connected Advisor. Make sure you subscribe and follow. You can find us on any podcast platform that your ears will find. And we'll see you on the next one.